Welcome to the Sum of It All Mathematizing Literature Podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague, Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And we're excited to continue reading and learning with you today. This season, we're exploring the book, Mathematizing Children's Literature, Sparking Connections, Joy and Wonder Through Read-Alouds and Discussion by Allison Hintz and Anthony T. Smith. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. And once again, we're welcoming back our wonderful colleague, Sharisa Beck, um, back to the conversation and so glad to have her voice, ideas, and experiences with us to get into this podcast. For sure, Audrey. And uh, well, uh, this episode is chapter seven. We're going to talk about chapter seven, learning together as educators. So as we kick off talking about this chapter, let me first say it was hard to leave the student vignettes behind. I mean, I was enjoying those so much. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's important. We have a little bit of a shift in this chapter as the authors, you know, they're working to guide us in how, as educators, we can work together to make the work of mathematizing literature happen. Yeah. Good news, though. They start with one of their quotes, which has become one of my absolutely most favorite parts of their chapters, uh, this time from Alam Kasimi, and she says, school should be organized for educators learning as much as for students learning. Teresa, what did you think about this quote? Oh, absolutely. Schools should be a learning place for students and the adults. But I will say schools just can't be organized for structures and time set aside for learning. Conditions that support learning need to be in place. It's, you know, it's, it's critical to have a culture and a climate that invites and supports teacher ex exploration and experimentation rather than focusing on learning the right way to do something. There really is no one right way to do mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. And, and for that to happen, the adults need to feel respected, they need to feel valued, they need to be seen as capable, and they need to be free to experiment and, and reflect, you know, try stuff out and then come back and, and think about how it went and what to do next. Yeah, that, that's true, Sharisa. I agree with all that, but I have to confess something to both of you here. Um, when I saw the phrase PLCs or professional learning committees or communities, <laughs> not committees, communities, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I saw that phrase and saw the acronym, I have to say, I, I went back to, you know, some memories of some not so successful PLCs. And I'm going to just pull out the analogy of I've had a lot of bad warm up bands. OK, <laughs> you know, when you go to a concert and you have a bad warm up band, like I have to say that. Some of that's true for me for PLCs. So um, I like how we might want to start thinking about PLCs a little bit differently because I think I have to say that sometimes I'm, I'm a victim of my past experiences with that. Uh, you know what I mean, Audrey? Yeah, I, mm. I totally do. Like I can point to, you know, one PLC I was a part of that I was like, if we had stayed together, if nobody had moved or changed, you know, had to change locations, like that would have been a powerful team. Um, and I hope that each person, and they, as they look back at their career, can kind of do that and point to like a really wonderful experience. Um, but whether or not you can, whether or not they've been all great or all difficult, I think one of the things that I'm reminded of as I read this was that we as educators need to feel empowered to create our own PLCs and not just um, feel like we're stuck in the ones that have been given that name, perhaps by a school or a district. Um, and that you can have more than one PLC, like the intent behind them is it's a space and a group of individuals who are learning together um, and they don't have to be the same people for the same things. And, you know, to be transparent with our listeners, I feel like this podcast has been a PLC for me. Um, and 
for, I'm hoping for you as well, Mark and Sharice. So mm -hmm. we've, we've roped yeah. you into our PLC. Is <laughs> sure. it like, um, the, the intent here is that we're learning together and we're learning together by reading and having discussion. Um, we're talking about things and that in coming from different backgrounds, you know, I come from a secondary background, Mark from elementary, Sharissa coming from an ELA background instead of a, a heavy math background. Like we pushed on each other's ideas and opinions, right? We push on unconscious bias. We don't realize we have, we push on things that we just don't have experience with. And so I think that's really the intent of what they're describing in this chapter behind a PLC is a group of people willing to talk about things, listen to each other um, and have some conversation in order to continue growing and learning. Yeah. So Mark and Audrey, I totally relate to your past PLC experiences. And I will say that the one we're engaging in currently is super positive. And so I love the idea of PLC or just any professional learning being a space where teachers get to actually engage in the work that they're going to do with students. You know, and this could happen in any content area. It could be reading and analyze text together like they do in our book. Um, you could be writing and constructing texts together, um, engaging in math exploration, science investigation, engaging, you know, anything in the arts. And all the while thinking of how you'll facilitate the experience with students. You know, you're anticipating student responses as they did in the book, looking for places to linger, uh, what places might be particularly challenging and how you handle those. But what a fantastic use of teacher's time. So I love on page 161, they uh, talk about second paragraph, they talk about teachers engaging in this mathematizing and it's, it's a gift, it's a gift of time. They get to deepen their, their own under mathematical understanding, but I'd say their understanding of, of literature too. Um, and then also on page 158, when they're describing that PLC, it says that they playfully brainstorm, like how fun is that? We need our jobs to be fun, playfully brainstorm. And I love that idea of, professional learning and teacher collaboration being playful. And then on top of page 159, um, it says, and page 159, it says, just like children's learning, educators learning is dynamic, interactive, and ongoing, and it needs to be fun and playful. So yes, loving yeah. this idea. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point, Sharissa. And um, it's really making me think about like, okay, you know, you made this point about time and having this time to read and notice and wonder in the books, you know, and they had this community to be able to do that. And it, it just reminded me how important it is to do with this with math problems as well. I, I think sometimes I've been part of math PLCs where we're talking about which problems we're going to assign or have kids engage in, but it's not the same as actually us doing math mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. you, know, I, uh, you know, this idea of math teacher circles, which is, is something that's out there in the world comes to mind and groups like that. But you know what's so interesting? is it's really hard to make this happen in a way that is, is something that's very comfortable for folks. And I think it's just because still math has such a power over even adults with answer getting versus like the creativity in the thinking. And I still might be sitting next to somebody that I feel like I still can't be vulnerable around because they are just a math whiz. And I, and I, I can't really just show my thinking because my strategy is just like not as good as their strategy. So, you know, we're encouraging our students not to do that. And here we are sitting side by side as adults and we're still doing the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. I really relate to that, Mark. I appreciate that, um, you know, it connects with, I think for me, what the authors were talking about with our, our own as educators, mathematical identity. And, you know, they, they share that, when we mathematize or through mathematizing, 
we have the chance to more deeply understand the math we teach, but also nurture our identity as mathematicians. And I think that's a little bit of what you're talking about is like math has this really strange power right over people and we don't see ourselves as mathematicians. We might teach math as a subject in school, but are we mathematicians? Like, um, I, you know, I think that happens from everyone from our TK teachers all the way through our high school teachers where they're like, I'm not actually a mathematician. I just teach the subject, right? And we really need to flip that on its head and consider like, how are we engaging as mathematicians? If we're trying to teach our students to be mathematicians, we got to engage in that same way. And, you know, they talk about, there's a quote on page 161 that says, it's also a gift that we have the opportunity to deepen our own mathematical understanding and grow our identity as mathematicians through the work of teaching. And when I read that, I had this like moment of like clarity where I was like, you know, the first time I taught calculus is actually the time I think I actually learned calculus. Does that make sense? Like, mm -hmm. I don't think I really <laughs> understood the, the area of mathematics until I was teaching it. And I know we talk about that where people are like, you really know it when you teach it. Um, but it's a gift. It's a gift that when you are teaching, you actually are learning that mathematics deeply as well. Oh, I, I think that's so true, Audrey. And I mean, I even have elementary examples of that. Um, I, I, I think of a problem that I used a few years ago, and it's actually from the 2013 uh, California Mathematics Framework. And it's about this pen that you're creating for a dog named Rex and, mm. and thinking about that you have this much material and how will you arrange the material so that you build this, this fence, this pen around uh, the dog. And, and you know, I, I still remember even after we had observed some students engaging in this, in this particular problem, I'm out in the parking lot with some colleagues and we look at each other and we're like, wait, it could actually be in the shape of a circle. <laughs> we're sitting there, we're all adults, like sitting in the parking lot talking about, wait, it could be, you know, because it could be a rectangle, it could be a square. They were just like, wait, it could be a circle. Then we're like, wait a second, will the perimeter be, be maximized if it's a circle? So, I mean, just that discovery with, with adults that had all been educators for a long time. Um, yeah, that's the kind of thing we want to replicate, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've had that similarly when you and I were talking about systems of equations and using clothesline math to make sense of it. Oh yeah, um, that's and, right. Right, and really trying to understand it. And so I think there's this space of as adults, when you when you open yourself up to be playful, like Sharissa was talking about, mm -hmm. and vulnerable, which is what you're talking about too. Like you're all willing to say, like I don't, I don't know, is a circle? Does that do it or not? Right, as opposed to needing to have some kind of status attached to, like, um, you know, well, I'm not the smartest mathematician in the group, but I can, I have to ask, I defer to so-and-so to answer this question, right? Instead of like grappling with it authentically and saying like, I don't know, uh, what does it happens with the system of equation if I do that? Does that really make sense? Or does the circle maximize it? I think those are the moments where we really learn and grow together and I think are so powerful. You know, so Mark, you were talking about um, having people get comfortable with this grappling and exploration. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because so math can be the scary thing. And, you know, simply people, I'm not good at math. And, you know, not a ton of people think they're good at math. But if you ask everybody, they're like, yeah, I'm a reader and I'm a good reader. But I'll tell you, in my experience of diving into and analyzing text with adults, you know, we read some provocative piece and then you open it up and say, so what are you thinking? people tend to be really reluctant to share their ideas. Mm. And so, you know, it's, so it happens in, a, in an area where people think that, yeah, they're proficient, they're good. And this might be because some of us in school, middle school, high school, college may have been taught 
or got the message somehow that with books, there is one right answer. There's one theme, one message. And, you know, we all know that you can go buy the cliff notes for a book and it tells you what it means, the right answer. Well, and those, true. <laughs> Yeah. And so people have done that and maybe, you know, that perpetuates that. But and it, the funny thing is those cliff notes aren't written by the author. They're written by someone else is telling you their interpretation. Um, so, so it's tough even, even with reading. So people are often very hesitant to being playful in exploring ideas and interpretations. And it's, it's really sad because exploring different interpretations in text is so fun and there's so many, it just depends on what you bring with it. So, you know, I, I think in some places it may take some time for people to feel like they can be playful with text or everything, but it's, it's time well spent. It'll make our, our, our jobs so much more fun and interesting. Yeah, for sure. And Sharisa, I'm never going to look at cliff notes again the same way. <laughs> I mean, I feel like cliff notes are the one strategy in mathematics, almost like the standard algorithm. So like, uh, wow, super cool. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, I, I feel like we shouldn't, uh, we, we have to include in this episode, th this notion of productive struggle. Um, yes. Uh, Audrey and I have, have spent a few years now and really working to see what that might look and sound like in mathematics. How do we how do we work with teachers and students and ensuring that that environment is 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 happening? And so, you know, the authors mention in this chapter how our classrooms are often filled with what they call quick task completion activities, and that mm -hmm. that resonated with me. And you know, like how do we break out of that mold? Um, because that you know, that, that quick task completion and the type of tasks that are set up that way. I mean, the really, again, back to setting, it's set up for that mythical average student. And, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that experience that's gonna stay with our students. You know, I, I often think of the example, like, am I teaching for the quiz on Friday or am I teaching for something for my kids to know two weeks from now? Um, and I know sometimes when I was teaching that kind of gave me pause because I had this moment, it was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm teaching for the quiz on Friday. Like that's a, that's a, that's a scary thought, right? Mm -hmm. um, but remember earlier in the chapter where we, you know, or sorry, earlier in the book where we, the whole idea of overhearing students talking about their learning outside of their formal lessons, like that's what we want. Um, so, you know, this idea of productive struggle, if this is the answer to all that, um, you know, it's, it's really cool because even though I said at the beginning of this episode, we don't have any student vignettes. They actually did work one in. So yes. I'm pretty pleased by that, right? Yes. <laughs> and it was a good one. <laughs> so on page 170, I'm just going to, for our listeners that may not have their book in front of them, I want to just give a little bit of the, the scenario. So there was a teacher that was asking her first grade students an open-ended question. And after she asked that question, the authors described there was a moment of quiet tension that hung over the room. I think we've all heard and felt that quiet tension mm -hmm. before, right? Mm -hmm. Right? And the teacher turned to us, meaning the authors, to confer and consider if she should ask the question in a different way, because it's just like crickets, right? Like right. there's nothing happening, right? <laughs> she wondered if the way she asked the question made sense to the students. Like you can see all of us in the, when we've been there, like just sitting there saying, I asked the wrong question. I better just close it up. And, yep. you know, and it says, did she need to ask a question that was more direct, directive, or were students quiet because they were thinking? We believe that students were thinking. We decided to use 
extended wait time. Slowly, I like the word slowly there. Slowly <laughs> children began reaching for Unifix cubes, sketching on their whiteboards and their laps or drawing on plain paper. Yeah. I just love that sequence of events there. Um, isn't that cool? It was yes. so cool. And actually I, I heard on the Math Teacher Lounge podcast just this last week, they interviewed Allison and Tony. And uh, this was one of the vignettes they talked about. And Allison describes like that moment when the teacher turned to her and said, should I ask a different question? You know, like, and I was like, <laughs> I've said that in my head, like, or to a colleague in a room before when it has been absolutely quiet. And, you know, talk about making thinking visible. The first thinking that happens is not at all visible. Like you are just looking at a whole room of faces and whether or not like <laughs> any thinking right. is happening, it's not transparent and it's super scary. And it mm -hmm. like the, the desire to abandon and move on to a new question or to offer some help or to restate or to, Hey, everyone grab your Unifix cubes is so, so strong. And so mm. the fact that she, this teacher had, you know, two colleagues in the room who said, let's just wait. Um, and Tony, I think says it was like 90 seconds. Wow. Like it was like, that's eternity. eternity. <laughs> like they really just waited and finally mm. it all comes out. Right. And so I nice. just, I so appreciate this reminder that like, I don't know at what point, you know, if you've gotten to two minutes, maybe you do abandon ship and you say like, let's, let's ask a different question. I don't know what the timing is. I do know that with every second, I imagine that teacher becoming more and more and more uncomfortable. And I imagine Allison and Tony questioning whether or not wait time was the right thing to do. Right. right. But in the end, what came out of it was so valuable. And so sometimes I think it's just so powerful to remember that we have to wait and we have to allow our time, the time for learners to process and think on their own and struggle in that way to make sense. Um, so I appreciated that vignette so much. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it makes me want to unpack it a little bit and get to the practical takeaways is it, it seems like that there's two things that happen there, right? Um, one is sort of like we need to leave the door open. And, and the second thing is like asking a question that is like that just right question in terms of how open-ended it is, right? But Mark, um, what do you mean by leaving the door open? Oh, yeah, yeah. that was a little vague. Uh, so what I mean <laughs> by leaving the door open is just this idea of like, of, of having that space, leaving the door open. So it's, it's sort of like, it's open for students to have that space to think. And, and not feel like it's back to that quick pace thing where like we have an activity, it's this long. And so you have exactly one minute to do your thinking, you know, and, and sort of just leave that space. So um, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Teresa. Good, good question. Yeah. <laughs> what almost feels like in, in making space, you're saying like it's something worth thinking about too, right? Mm -hmm. Like that leaving the door open means like it's worth thinking about. Let's take yeah. time to think. So I appreciate you, you elaborate on that. Um, it relates back to another quote that I love from this chapter that was talking about the open notice and wonders. Um, and it just said like, when we have learned to expect the unexpected since we are to some degree asking for it. And so <laughs> I appreciated that, that moment of like, when you ask an open-ended question or when you ask one of these open notice and wonders reads, like you are asking for the unexpected. And so instead of uh, feeling 
failure in not anticipating everything that a student might notice, or instead of like being worried that there's gonna be something like expect it, expect the unexpected. Someone's gonna say something that you never thought they were gonna say. They're gonna ask a question you never anticipated, no matter how many colleagues you have around at the table trying to anticipate together. And that that's actually the beautiful thing about this. Um, yeah. So I, I really appreciate that. Then I also think about like, that still feels super uncomfortable. Like any loss of control feels a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> as a teacher. And so I appreciate um, the really practical piece Allison shared about asking open questions, which when she described early on, she had a math coach who had her write on two note cards, the questions, how do you know that? And how did you solve that? And she would carry them around on her clipboard and kind of alternate which questions she asked. <laughs> and in doing so, it built her own curiosity about what her students were thinking. And in turn, she describes, it built her students' curiosity of each other. And so how powerful it is to have some like response to these open questions that, you know, like a continued open questioning sequence, something that, that allows the curiosity to kind of build and grow. Um, and we've talked about that in previous episodes, but I saw that strong connection here, Mark. Yeah, I, Audrey, I appreciate that practical takeaway. I, I think that that's really nice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so in that, on that vein, like, this is what I'm walking away with uh, after our conversation today. I mean, you know, we've talked about creating or finding a PLC professional learning community to, to continue learning with, however that looks and breaking out of the mold of it, having to be the one that my principal assigned me to. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then leaving the door open as I was calling it, right. Yeah. You know, leaving this space, um, for students to, to think, you know, and, and knowing that all of our students have variability and they're not all going to think at the same pace, right? And we can, and we can facilitate that productive struggle by asking more open-ended questions. Uh, so I'm throwing it out to our listeners now, uh, which next step are you going to take? Mm. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about chapter eight family and community connections. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions, thoughts, and maybe even your next step. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on sparking connections, joy, and wonder. Mm -hmm.